Welcome to the Better Clinician Podcast with myself, Ben Cormack, and also Adam Meekins. The Better Clinician Project brings you high-quality education at a ridiculously low price. This podcast will bring you topics that are relevant to modern clinical practice, all done with a bit of fun and humour. Nothing in this podcast constitutes medical advice. Okay, everybody. So welcome back to another one of our our regular monthly Thoughtful Thursdays where myself, Adam Meekins, and my good colleague, Mr. Ben Cormack, get deep and dirty into some topics and debates and some discussions thrown at us by our BCP members. So, Mr. Cormack, how the devil are you this month? Yeah, not too bad. I think I'm suffering from SAD. It's all dark and miserable at the moment. And uh, yeah, I want some sunshine is what I need. I need like a week in the Bahamas or something like that, I reckon. Okay. Aren't I enough sunshine for you? Don't I give you some uh, (laughs) light and uh, delight when you come on and talk to me and look at me across the, the, the visuals of Zoom? Yeah, so look, I would say you are my metaphorical sunshine. <laughs> you do not provide me with the chemicals, the vitamin D, per, and and you know, you uh, yes, metaphorical rather than rather than chemical, my friend. <laughs> I think I supply you with some other types of hormones and chemicals when you look at me, mate. Probably stress related, right? Yes, I was going to say anger, <laughs> testosterone, uh, anxiety. <laughs> High levels of cortisol and those sort of things rather than vitamin D. It's an exceptionally emotional experience, but not always the good ones. Um, Anyway, we're going to dive in. So um, first question this week is from one of our members from all the way down under. G'day, Um, mate. Throw another shrimp on the barbie. Obviously, uh, Francis is cuddling a koala while cooking a shrimp while drinking, drinking a Castle Mate Forex. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've gone back in time with Castle Mate Forex, haven't I? <laughs> that is an old one, that is. Castle. I don't give a Castle Mate Forex about anything. I don't. Yeah, there you go. There you go. So uh, you, if you probably worked out, uh, our, our friend Francis is down there um, in Australia. I'm not sure where in Australia, if I'm being honest. Um, but but there you go. And it, Francis's question was a bit of a long one. And what we're trying to, to summarise it a little bit, mate. Yes, exactly. So, so as far as I can tell, what we're talking about here, um, and this may be correct or may not be correct, is this idea of um, kind of tissue injury and mechanism of injury, um, and you know something that we can define versus uh, pain or injury. And Francis used the example of the lower back which may be more insidious or more we might determine it more related to some form of sensitivity rather than damage. Is that how you interpreted it? Yeah, so I think what Francis is asking, uh, like a lot of clinicians, myself included, I think it is sometimes easier to explain, to deal with, to manage, to clinically reason those back pains that have a clear mechanism of injury, that have a clear, you know, I've done something, therefore I've had some structural injury, therefore I've got this expectation and understanding of what's going on. 
versus people that come in and said, I've got back pain that's come out of nowhere. I haven't changed anything. I haven't got a clear mechanism of injury. It's just sore and uncomfortable and it feels like it's getting worse and worse and worse. So I think, you know, and again, from a clinical reasoning point of view, from a clinician's point of view, these can be sometimes harder. I think this is what Francis is saying to, to understand, to diagnose, if you want to use that word, to be able to manage, to be able to explain to patients. So she's perhaps asking us here, you know, how do we do it? And what are some of our thoughts here when it comes to back pain with clear onsets, mechanisms, injuries versus back pain that doesn't have that presentation? Yeah, and it, like even even um, I think even very very clear injuries uh, such as disc related stuff. So disc herniations. What's interesting, and I think this is Pradeep Shuri's research, is that, and I think you've cited this, and I've cited this before, is that even with uh, you know clearly defined tissue injury such as a disc herniation, not a lot of people can actually relate it to a simple mechanism of injury which i always find quite interesting yeah it is that common assumption that disc herniations happen when you're lifting up great big heavy weights when you're doing yeah. a max effort deadlift in the gym only accounts for about i think five to ten percent of all onsets of ridiculous related issues most ridiculous pains are, are a lot more innocuous in onset so i think you know some of the other ways that they happen is getting out of bed in the morning it's stepping off a curb that's the wrong height or you misjudge the height and you jar the landing you know so these slightly lower intensity or quite much lower intensity type of mechanisms for onset of ridiculous issues happen quite more commonly than the ones that you'd expect to bring it on which again can confuse some patients even though they've got this clear structural presentation how the hell is my disc ruptured and herniated when I've just gotten out of bed in the morning, when I do that thousands of times for years and years and years without any problems? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two things here. One is that's part of the complexity of the body that we don't fully understand. Um, and, you know, why does an ACL go pop when it's done the movement hundreds or thousands or a million times? Why did it go pop today? Yeah. Um, so I think that's one thing that we have to say is that sometimes there are intangibles, there are unknowables, there is complexity that compounds. But I think the other thing that I often, phrasing I often use is, is it the straw that breaks the camel's back? Is there is a process that may have gone on before this event or before this thing has manifested itself that may have gone on and contributed to that problem. And I think that is that not the, the, the kind of explanation of lots of overuse type of injuries? Yeah, no, I think that's a good analogy. Um, I've sometimes used one that's got a slightly bit more of a nocebic slant. I say the same sort of thing. I say sometimes it's death by a thousand cuts, you know. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's just that slow, slow, gradual process over time of, you know, various different factors causing a tissue to slightly, slowly, gradually start to fail. And then it is something really innocuous that just tips it over the edge. So, yeah, you know, what those factors are, I say it's multifactorial. It could be natural aging processes, could be environmental, could be internal health-related things going on. All of these things in combination can cause tissues to change. And that change again can lead to, say, onset of pain and symptoms because of that. But then again, yeah. we know the other side of the coin is true as well. Sometimes they don't lead to onset and pain. Uh -huh. Those changes are adaptable. And again, some people say, well, how come that happens and I've, it hasn't happened to me? Why haven't I adapted to these slow 
changes? Why has it now suddenly decided to cause me pain? And that, again, can be quite a challenging conversation to have. Yeah, I, yeah. So, so you know, could it? There, there are various processes that can occur. We can have repetitive actions, and slowly over time, that changes sensitivity. Maybe it changes, uh, you know, inflammatory functions, immune system functions, and then suddenly, you know, something it happens that maybe adds to that and sensitizes it, and you know, we have this, you know, lots of contributing factors, and suddenly that one rep is the one that you did when the contributing factors actually at their, at their peak, you know, and suddenly it didn't hurt three reps before it didn't hurt yesterday. Um, so, so I think the, you know, the idea that sometimes we can do things like a really, really small movement um, and it hurts probably points to the fact that maybe there's other things that have contributed to that previously. It doesn't always need to be this inciting event of, and again, it comes back to, does pain always equal damage? Does damage always equal pain? And that timeline, again, is disrupted here, isn't it? Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so again, I just uh, I do agree with what Francis says. You know, sometimes it's harder for us to explain these mechanisms and these issues to patients and for them to understand and accept them compared to traumatic, clear mechanisms yeah. of injury. So. Hopefully, it's just giving you a few simple ways of trying to uh, to word it, to think about it. But at the end yeah, of the it's day, just... it, it, there's, there's always uncertainty around these things as well. And I think that's just something I want to say is that we have to be better accepting and tolerating uncertainty as clinicians and, and trying as best as uh, we can to pass that on to our patients and then saying to them, look, it, we, we think it could be this. We could hypothesize this, this, and this, and this, and this. But, you know, there's no real way of knowing exactly which one of these it definitely is. And often there's no need to either because, you know, we know that even if we do have two or three hypotheses, they all tend to have the same sort of outcome. They all tend to have the same sort of process of natural history and resolution what we're going to be doing through that process is looking at some specific factors that are a meaning tool to you and see if we can try and work around those and address those rather than using the pathology or the suspected diagnosis to guide us or to help us because often we don't need to yeah and again it does come back to sometimes sometimes things aren't simply explainable and the problem is, yeah, exactly. That's a great. And I think this is exactly the reason why we have diagnoses like uh, tight hip flexors. Yeah. Or do you, do you see what I'm saying? Because it's a way of, it's another way of not saying we we're not entirely sure. It's another way of trying to come up with a potential reason. Yeah, but those silly ones that people come up with, that they, they are trying to make a, a definite reason as to what's that, going that's on. the I, point I, yeah yeah, yeah I, so they're, they're not actually accepting the uncertainty they're, they're, they're basically pulling something out of the air yeah. or trying to ignore and work around the uncertainty exactly I much, I much prefer you know those individuals that would use a very loose or woolly thing you know like a syndrome or or something like that because that means you know you understand that there's there's a collection of symptoms but no clear definition of what's actually producing them with syndromes yeah, but I think my, my point was that because we do have this uncertainty, people tries to minimise that by coming up with all these different theories and all these different answers. Okay. And actually, sometimes we need to sit back and say, yeah, maybe we, we don't know. As we could be as making things worse rather yeah. than better by doing Yeah, it. absolutely. So maybe right. there's always an answer. Yeah.
Good question, Francis. Thanks for that one, as always. And uh, I hope your deadlifts are going well, because she did say in her question as well that she hurt her back deadlifting like I did last year. So I hope your back's feeling better, Francis, and you're smashing out those moral, vertical standing upright barbell pull-ups. Well, I've decided to stop. the moral of the story. Shut up. I'm talking. <laughs> I've decided to stop calling deadlifts deadlifts. You noticed? I'm now going to start calling, because I think deadlifts can sometimes have a bit of a fear-inducing term, so I'm going to start calling them barbell pull-ups. I like that. I saw that last night, and it made me laugh. So it's my new term for deadlifts. Anyway, what were you saying? But my point, which is obviously far more important, is that deadlifts are obviously dangerous, aren't they? You and Francis have both now been injured. If we have this control group of N equals two, deadlifts are dangerous. 100% guaranteed to cause back pain, mate. There you go. There you go. So I think you need to like, we need to acknowledge this. We need to look at the evidence and we need to move on. All right. Well, uh, again, thanks for your, uh, your question, Francis. Right. Next question. Now we're going all the way over to the good old US of A, brother. You gotta love the diversity at the BCP, haven't you? We've we've flown in a in a in a heartbeat from Australia to America. How amazing is that? We are quite a international global organization, the BCP. We're a bit like United Nations, but with not as much uh, empathy, care, or assistance across the world, perhaps at the moment. Yeah, or or internal politics. Well, that's probably true as well. Well, I don't know. I think we've got a bit, you and me. We have a bit of politics. Yeah, but that's very small internal politics compared to the, you know, the breadth of our members. But there you well, go. Well, as the Secretary General of the BCP and the UN, maybe we uh, we should be a... Uh, yeah, anyway, moving on. So, anyway, we're, our question's coming from John Ware over in the USA. So, John's a member of the BCP, and he tried to ask a question on last month's BCP, but didn't manage to squeeze in. So, we're squeezing... He was too in. late. He was a bit late. So we're squeezing him into this one. So John has asked, and this is a good question as well, um, how physical therapy is often identified as an intervention rather than a profession? This happens both in rehab and in the research and in the real world. What do us PTs do to deserve this conflation and what can we do to counter it? Boom. What a question that is. Mr. Cormack, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think the problem with, let's go what broader, and I think this applies to osteopaths, chiropractors as well, et cetera, is I often think we conflate the process of physical therapy or MSK treatment with intervention. So I think that, you know, it's 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 mostly about what can you do about it. Right. I think that's the that's one of the biggest deals that that, you know, it's the, the diagnostic element, the care element, the interaction element are under recognized and everything gets caught up in this uh, this idea of what are you going to do about it? What's the solution? What's the intervention? If you look at a doctor, they're quite well recognized for their ability to diagnose. And actually, the treatment side is quite minimal, isn't it? Go home, lie in bed, drink a lemsif, don't die. <laughs> but if you think about physical therapy or you think about chiropractic or osteopathy, it seems to be tied into the intervention, the manual therapy or the exercise or the machines that go bing. So I think that sometimes the idea of what is done, it, it seems to be more of a technical transaction more than anything, if, if that makes sense. So I think that's why there's that conflation. Yeah. And um, to any doctors listening, I apologise to you for my rather insulting comment listed by my good friend Ben Cormack that says all that you do is give people out lem sips. I'm sure you doctors do do far no, more than just no, that. But I think the interventional side of it, 
is less important than the contact side of it is what I'm trying to say. I don't know. With doctoring, I think there is a, it depends on which doctor, what type of doctor you are and where you work. But there are some doctors that do some very complex interventions, mate. You know, you're working in oncology. Yeah, okay. Maybe my point would be more, say, a GP, for example. Yeah, there are some GP. Anyway, I don't want to get into that too much, but you know, I I just want to make sure that any doctors out there don't feel too disappointed or devalued by my colleague Ben Cormack saying you just prescribe lemsips or extra strong mints for people. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's so much more that what I'm trying to describe is it's it's not defined interventionally as much as physical therapy. No, that's true. And I think from a a society cultural point of view as well, you know, not many people say, oh, I'm going to get some doctor in today. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's the point in a nutshell. Whereas they're quite happy to say, oh, I'm going to get some physiotherapy today, you know, and, you know, I say to people, you know, what do you mean you're going to get some physiotherapy? You you're going to get what done to you. Well, I normally have some massage and a manipulation and they stick some needles into me and they give me a sheet of shitty exercises that I don't do at home. And I go, all right, yeah, that's 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 the physiotherapy profession of which you've just described three or four different interventions all done sounding pretty shitly. Yeah. So <laughs> that's where society very much gets this conflation and this confusion between the profession and the interventions. And the other thing also is I think, you know, the, the physios and the clinicians themselves are to blame for this because they very much attach their professional identity to one or two specific interventions. Yeah. So, you know, I know physiotherapists who, who do very much call themselves manual therapists. You know, yeah. they are aligned and attached and their identities embedded within the massage and the manipulations so this this gets me a little bit because so if i'm a manual therapist so i'm not running down manual therapy but if i identify as a manual therapist does everything end up in manual therapy does that make sense because that's what i am that's what i do and is manual therapy the right thing for every condition And I think that's the problem in itself. So if I'm a massage provider, everything ends up in a massage. Is that right for every condition? Absolutely not. So if I'm a manual therapist, does everything end up in manual therapy? You know, and I think that's a problem in itself. It's uh, it's literally this is where it's going to end up. And so what's the point in the process before that? (laughs) Yeah, no, and I agree. And I say to those physios that do go around calling themselves manual therapists that you are you are perpetuating this cultural and societal factor that, you know, all physiotherapy is based on one intervention, one manual therapy, when we know that's not the case at all. And I also flip the coin with them. And everybody, you know, says to me, oh, Adam, you're not a physiotherapist because you just only use exercise. You only recommend people do deadlifts for all their problems and cure everything. And I say, no, I don't. I use lots of various interventions, but I just don't go around calling myself an exercise therapist. I am still a physiotherapist, but I just don't use the manual therapy. I have other views and opinions on those interventions that I've decided that they don't offer me or the population I work with that much. So I've, I've stopped using them, but that doesn't mean I'm only using one particular type of intervention. It's not just that you've got this manual therapy or you haven't got, you've got exercise therapy. There's lots of other things as well that physio can cover. I might call myself a behavior changer list because I think that probably uh, that probably explains most of what I do, whether that's health behaviours, whether it's thought behaviours, whether it's physical behaviours. 
Mostly, I think I, that's probably what I'm interacting with the most yeah. in, interventionally. What can we change? Um, and uh, but we don't do that, do we? So, so I think that maybe you know we, it, people need to to recognise that it's not all about intervention, um, and that, as you say, is perpetuated sometimes by people themselves. Absolutely, and and again, I think John makes a good point. It's also perpetuated in the research. Um, you know, I hate reading papers that says usual care as a group. Yeah, or, or, or they received physiotherapy. They had physiotherapy. I'm like, oh, hold on. we're comparing physiotherapy versus this other intervention. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. what, what do you mean, usual care? There's no such fucking thing. There's so much diversity in, in how uh, physios practice and the interventions they use. There's no such thing as usual care. Well, yeah, and absolutely that shows that people who are using these terms and designing these control interventions see physio as a very, very defined thing, yeah. um, whereas actually, you know, the, the variety of ways that you can provide musculoskeletal care is uh, pretty broad. Yeah, I say the only ones that I, I accept the term usual care is when they've actually semi-controlled it, when they've structured it. So I'm thinking of the study, um, the FROST trial that came out a couple of years ago looking yeah. at uh, frozen shoulder management versus surgical interventions. So there was manipulation of anesthesia, arthroscopic release of contractures, or yeah. uh, steroids and physiotherapy. And mm. the physiotherapy after the surgery was the same as the physiotherapy uh, after the steroid injection. So they semi-structured yes. the physiotherapy yeah, yeah. treatment to be the same. So they made sure that this usual care physiotherapy was... Um, controlled for but when when papers just say we're comparing usual physiotherapy versus x i'm like and don't describe what is that is going to include drives me crazy yeah no i suppose i mean I, I you know maybe just provide an alternative perspective in some ways is that actually if you look at it pragmatically that probably you know, if you do get a variety of different treatments, that probably does reflect what actually people get, doesn't it? Well, it, it, it it's, it's definitely pragmatic, I think is the word there. It's definitely yeah, exactly. real world. It's definitely exactly. Because there is so much variation in physiotherapy, which which I think is sometimes a problem, but also sometimes good to have because it gives options and things as well. But there we well, go. As long as that variation is plausible, evidence-based, et cetera, I think. Yeah, there has to be some boundaries with regards to the variation yes. we offer, that's for sure. There's individualization and there's batshit fucking craziness, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm actually going to – we're going to answer four today, but we're only going to answer one very, very quickly because I do want to ask answer this one from Bob, actually, Bob Hessel. Okay. And he said, what do you think about the thoughts from the paper by Mr Padlock? <laughs> Oh my God, Bob, what are you doing to me? I try, I'm trying to cut down on the amount of expletives and uh, naughty words that I use, and I'm going to struggle not to do that with that question there. So, yeah, this uh, this paper that came out about discs not adapting to loads and to exercise based on uh, what, who was it? Aaron Horsheg, Mr. Squat University, um, Andrew Locke, uh, aka Dr. Locke, who hasn't got a doctorate or a PhD or any type of qualification to go around calling himself a doctor, has said. And there was a third author on there, someone I didn't really know, some other uh, exercise scientist, again, with a bit of a dubious uh, background. But basically, they've published this shitty article, and it's not even an article, the way it's formatted the way it's worded it's it's a poorly written blog in fact i think some of my blogs are written better than this paper 
uh, they've submitted it into a predatory journal and the predatory journals are a big problem out there at the moment. And I think, you know, they, they confuse a lot of clinicians because they're sometimes hard to spot. So this predatory journal has got absolutely no quality control, no peer reviewing processes in. You pay your money, they publish your paper, and you get a DOI reference number, which makes it citable, makes it a citable reference now. Yeah. Uh, and say so there's about 100, 150 of these predatory journals around in musculoskeletal therapy alone. And this one they used, as I say, is a classic example of it. It publishes about 200 papers every month in a journal. Uh, various topics ranging from disc adaptations to earthquake analysis to credit card fraud, <laughs> all in the same fucking journals. So I'm like, wow, you must have a really far extensive network of peer reviewers working in these specialized areas that you can send all these papers to. And here's the other clue that you know it's not peer reviewed. Date of submission to date of publication was under 48 hours. Shut up. <laughs> Jesus Christ, I did 18 I was going to say, how long did yours review. take to get through? Yeah, then? I did 18 months and four rounds of fucking peer review. These fuckers did it in 48 hours. Darn, now I'm pissed off. So, again, there are ways and means that you can backtrack and uh, check out these things. So when you see data submission, you know, 24th of October 2022. Date of publication, 23rd of October. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely know something fishy afoot is going on there. So that tells yeah. you, as I say, this is a predatory journal. You pay your money. They don't do any back checking and they just publish your paper that will say makes it citable. And you can then start claiming you're a published author. You can start citing your research and saying, look, it, this must be true because of this backing evidence that I've got. So a lot of people out there are doing it and it's um, it's a problem. It's an issue. So Andrew Locke, yeah, Horshegg, Scott University, their reliability of themselves as human beings and authors has gone down massively because of that behaviour. That is shithousery of the highest order, and it does reflect badly on their integrity, genuinity, and stuff along yeah. those lines. So whereas before, you know, I just thought we were having disagreements, it was personal, it was a little bit to and fro in. Now I know there's some shithousery involved. It's completely changed my thoughts and feelings about these individuals massively. Yeah, the morality aspect there that, you know, this idea of being published should be something that is a mark of quality, that you've gone through a process, that you've worked really, really hard to produce a piece of work that's publishable in a reputable journal. And to and the, that totally devalues that process. And as you say, the biggest word there, I think, is integrity. Yeah. The scientific integrity there is zero. Uh, and for me, that's a massive, massive problem. And what Adam, I think, uh, showing all this, he shows that that is a, the level of critical thinking that we need to cut through this kind of shithousery. Yeah, well, that's a great point. I was going to sort of finish off on that. A lot of people say, you know, how do you critically evaluate a paper? And I say, even before I start critically evaluating the contents of that paper, spend a couple of minutes just looking at where it's been published, who's published it, going in to see whether if it's a trial, it's been pre-registered, have they followed their guidelines with pre-registration, and is it in a journal of some reputable quality that knows that it's got some quality controls and checks yeah. as well? And if you're struggling to know which journals are quality or not, uh, go on the Beals website, so Beals list, B-E-A-L-L-S uh, list.com or .org, I think. 
Uh, but just Google's Beals list, and they 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 publish the list of their suspected predatory journals on there, and they keep that updated every month. So it's a good source for checking journals as uh, being reputable or not. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. And our final one is from Martin, our favourite, and now a, a BCP contributor. Actually, every Friday, Martin does his physio confessions, um, which has been a lovely addition to uh, the BCP uh, offering on social media. So thank you, Martin, for that. Martin asked the question, we all seem to mick up. Mick up? Mick up. up. Don't ask me. I've gone. It's all gone. (laughs) We seem to mix up popularity with competence especially on social media what's the difference between likes and knowledge yeah very good question again and uh, i think i'm going to start off by saying that you know you can't assume that somebody who is popular means that they are correct and accurate so i think that's the first thing i'm going to stipulate because that does seem to be a common assumption the more the more somebody is being followed the more somebody has got popularity therefore the more correct they must be they must be more right than somebody that's got less following or less social media influence and that's just absolute nonsense now that doesn't mean it's always the case because i have to stipulate that there because i am quite popular on social media and uh, i am quite right a lot of the time <laughs> I didn't put that out myself. <laughs> Even if I didn't say so myself, yes. But no, I, I recognize and say that I'm not right all the time, just a lot of the time. Uh, and I'm quite popular on social media. But no, just don't make that assumption that being popular means you're you're correct, accurate, or anything along those lines. And it certainly doesn't demonstrate greater levels of intelligence as um the last discussion we had on Squat University just goes to show. Yeah, well, look, that I was about to say, there is an inverse relationship sometimes, I think. I think getting lots of followers and lots of likes isn't always about the information that you put out. It's often about how you play the algorithms or the, the type of content, what it looks like, etc. And if we look at social media, often very, very similar content gets put up into you know, the top of the algorithm gets more likes, gets more this, gets more that. So it's not always the information. Maybe it's the way it's formatted, presented, how it appears and how the algorithms favour it. I think that's really important um, to understand. The best way to know about whether information is good is improve your critical thinking because then you find out, is it good or not? (laughs) Yeah, you're right there, mate. As I say, that... um... I forgot what I was going to say. Uh, do you ever get that? A thought enters your head and literally two and a half seconds later, it's gone. Always the best thoughts. And now that I'm trying to think about it, it <clears throat> it's irrecoverable. It's making it even harder. There was something you said that I was going to fucking say. Oh, carry on. Fill in for me. Obviously while I deeply to... profound and and it, and it sparked a moment of profundity in Adam Meekin. Oh, that's, that's it. It's come back. It's popped to me. Well done. Thanks for filling in for me. Uh, buddy no worries got you so i was going to say that um oh fucking it's gone again oh jesus christ this is senility now isn't it this is (laughs) fucking hell this is oh oh, fucking stop stop talking no don't carry on fill in i've got to try and get it back oh mate this is doing my head in stop rubbing it um yes (laughs) i think the point um here is that lots and lots of what gets liked it is often quite emotional or funny or visual or these type of things. You know, we see a lot of that, don't we? We see a lot of the meme type of accounts get a lot of likes and, you know, virally type of content. And that's great, but we shouldn't confuse that with good information. No. 
No, that's what I say. It's come back now. Third time lucky. The middle ground isn't sexy. It isn't controversial. It doesn't promote the say the attention or the algorithms to be as sparked as much as a controversial statement, taking an opinion or a side that is very dichotomous, very black or white, very them or us. You're either with us or you're against us. That very much appeals to this tribal mentality on social media for likes and followers with yes. lots of people commenting because you know that's what drives it the interaction that yes. the post gets so to get those interactions you sometimes have to you know promote things in a very yes or no black or white answer and then you get all those people who agree with it going yeah great yeah this is exactly what i think and then you get all the other people on the other side that's a load of bullshit and it doesn't really matter which side is commenting the comments are coming in and promoting this post and this information to be get more and more popular and then it un- starts to go down shit shows it starts to really diversify and these black and white uh groups tend to get further and further apart rather than then finding any common ground yeah it does seem to be that the more diverse or the more characters that are being attacked or that whatever it, it does seem to promote more interaction more likes etc now a lot of these posts i don't think are very informative if that makes sense so competence isn't even a question here because i don't actually think they're informative informational posts they're they're emotional posts aren't they um so i think more and more likes are about emotion and, and actually separate from competence and informative yep i agree so again it's uh it's a complicated conflated world social media and popularity everybody seems to be focusing on that rather than the information that they want to put out or the messages they want to put out they're chasing likes and follows and i get it it's nice to be liked and followed it gives us that hit of dopamine yes that nice little reward to think that people like what we say and do i get it i get it when i post stuff on social media but if you're always chasing that rather than having that sort of integrity and humility to be able to say, I also want to produce good information and content yes, that's exactly. accurate, yeah. then uh, you're, you're going down the wrong pathway. So, you know, don't start ending up down that sleazy road of doing things just for likes and follows. Try and do it for likes and follows, but also for good quality content. And- yeah, absolutely. And I think the most important thing is, you know, if you do want to be recognised as a competent individual and you do want to leverage that to improve your career and do some teaching and, you know, be someone who is a pillar of information, um, then, you know, sometimes the likes and the the thing, you know, that, that does, it gets you followers and it gets you likes, but does it have an effect on your actual career? And I think that's another thing. Yeah. And the other thing is, is don't expect quick results with it because that's something i see on social media a lot people always saying you know how can i get to ten thousand followers how can i get x amount of likes and followers on a post and stuff like that and and a lot of people ask me that and i said i've just plugged away at it you know time after time after time you need to be consistent you need to be reliable and say so you need to have that little bit of honesty and integrity with it as well with your posting mm-hmm. keep promoting the same messages don't yeah. chop and change around too much you know and, and that's the way you gradually build a following. I always was suspicious of anybody who's all of a sudden overnight as, you know, maxed out their followers. Suddenly I'm like, that don't happen in my experience. It can occasionally, you can get somebody going viral for various different reasons, but normally not the good reasons. No. So I find it very suspicious when I see a social media healthcare influencer suddenly, as I say, gaining 100, 200,000 followers in a very short space of time, probably paid for in my experience. Yeah, so I think, you know, I think both of us would agree, you know, if you do want to create content, 
it has to provide value and it has to come from a good place. And I think it's not just driven by a need for the likes because that's a bit narcissistic, I, I, I think. Yeah. And also, I don't think it's going to give you what you want. If you want to improve your career and be known as someone who gives good information, then you have to give good information. <laughs> Consistently over yeah. a long duration. Yeah, it's a long game, isn't it? I'm only 28. But you know, these things take time. There is no quick fixes to building reputations and experience and stuff and and even knowledge. A lot of people say, How do you stay up to date? How do you how are you so knowledgeable about stuff? I said, I've been on the planet probably 30 more years than you have. Yeah. And I've just been consistently reading more here, there, and everywhere, gradually, slowly over time. Processes. It's a it's a it's a thing of process rather life. than sudden quick fixes. Life is an accumulation, isn't it? Well, look, I think we had some great questions uh there today. Um oh, a lovely, thoughtful thursday i feel very energized in my gray matter area do you is it fizzing now like your man's undercarriage <laughs> my gentleman's area does fizz every now and again when we talk about things yes but for, for these conversations it hasn't reached those parts but it certainly it's titillated my cerebral cortex a little bit that's for sure well i'm glad to know that it's got your gray matter gently uh buzzing away. away yeah like a like a sparkler on bonfire night just those little electrical signals dancing across my uh, electrical membranes in my brain. Isn't it weird when you think about what your brain is inside your skull? It's a big, wet, sloppy mess of blancmange that transmits electrical signals from places to places. But, buddy, if we we talk about musculoskeletal problems and they baffle me, yeah. right? So going on to the idea of the, the fucking brain... Yeah. It, it's too much, isn't it? About, the brain is a baffling place. Three to four kilograms of wet, sloppy blancmange contained within a hard skull that sends electric, electrical signals from place to place. That's basically what a brain is. Amazing. But you're happy, you're sad, you're motivated, you're physical, you're just... It's, do you know what it is? It is the product of billions of years of evolution, isn't it? It's, no, it's all about that wet blancmange inside your head, mate, that's sending electrical signals from one side to the other. But that didn't just, like, fall out the sky, did it, numb nuts? <laughs> <laughs> all right, then, people. Always a pleasure for Thoughtful Thursday. Please remain thoughtful, share with us your thoughtfulness, and we will see you back um, with a Thoughtful Thursday very, very soon. Much love and peace out. Peace out. Thank you for listening to the BCP podcast. If you would like to check out the BCP, please go to www.betterclinicianproject.com. There we have literally hundreds of videos on clinical topics, exercise examples for rehabilitation and research reviews alongside features such as Thoughtful Thursday. And please tune in again.